Welcome to Camera Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna Abel, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers, hone your message, and make an impact on the world. Today's episode is brought to you by the phrase emotional intelligence, also known as EQ, which is the ability to understand, use, and manage your own emotions in positive ways to relieve stress, communicate effectively, empathize with others, and overcome challenges and diffuse conflict. According to Daniel Goleman, who wrote the book on it, the five characteristics of emotional intelligence are self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, and social skills. In the world of media and camera readiness, emotional intelligence often shows up as the ability to read the room. Here to discuss is Alex Yarrow, a conflict and emotional intelligence expert, as well as a coach, mediator, and trainer. Alex has lived in Europe and Asia and has a global perspective and special appreciation for cross-cultural communication. His trainings include navigating challenging conversations, feedback and coaching skills for leaders, and leadership, diversity, and inclusion. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Barbara. It's great to be here. It is fantastic to have this conversation. It's a topic I love to discuss, but it's also a, a, a phrase that's bandied about a lot. And I don't know how much many of us really understand what emotional intelligence is beyond the list of descriptors I offered. So mm. um, please define your take on emotional intelligence. Yeah, so it closely aligns that of, of Dan Goldman. So there's a, the, the first piece, of course, is to be self-aware and to understand oneself. So when um, you know, like I, along with every other human, get upset and get annoyed and frustrated and I feel that you know inside me. And I think what I'm able to do, having just studied this over the years, is identify what's going on in me. And when I do that, it allows me to then not have it spill over onto others. So that's sort of that first piece of self-awareness. And the second piece then is self-management, is uh, kind of wanting to say or type something in caps, you know, we have that feeling, or say something in caps, but then to be able to breathe through it and say, yeah, not a good time for another day. And I really literally have to remind myself to do that <laughs> several times a day. Um, so that's that emotional regulation. And then the, the, the other pieces around being able to read the room is being able to being aware of the emotions of others, of looking around and seeing our, what is the person's body language? What is their tone? Uh, is there a gap in their answer? And what does that mean? So those are some of the things that are in my head when I speak to people. And then the, the second, the, I'm sorry, the, the fourth piece of that is to being able to persuade others, being able to relate to them and being able to have conversations that are productive, even though the subject may be around conflict or a conflict that I may be having with someone, et cetera. Mm. Well, I, as I said in my introduction, this is a huge component in camera readiness for a variety of reasons. But one is we're going to talk about conflict in a second, but everything we do is a negotiation all day long. And, yep. and not necessarily negatively. It's like, where do you want to go for lunch? Is totally. I got, what do we want to watch tonight? Totally. Everything. And so there's emotional intelligence goes into all of this in the way that you were just describing. It, you know, and the, it doesn't have to be about regulating in a negative way. It's just about being aware of what the other person is and how do we communicate, right? Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. I love it, but I just want to stress for the audience. It's just like, this is, uh, this is essential in successfully communicating on camera. And then, and so part of emotional intelligence, right, is you can be in person. It's not necessarily through a lens, but a lot shifts when you're communicating strictly in a two-dimensional 
situation through a camera lens, sure. and then you've got to make all sorts of adjustments. But moving on from that, so how did you get excited about this and say, okay, I'm going to go get certified from the Goldman Institute? And I, what drew you to this? Yeah. So this has been a lifelong journey for me. I, I, so I started just ironically with all the events that are happening in the world as we're recording this. I was born in Ukrainian city, Lviv. Mm. And of course, different time. And when I was born, it was the Soviet Union. So this distinction between Ukraine and Russia was just very sort of theoretical and, and, and administrative. It wasn't, there wasn't a real distinction for me living there at the time. Um, and so, but when I grew up, uh, so, uh, born into a Jewish family and, uh, like Zelensky, you know, the, the president of, uh, of Ukraine and, um, really experienced conflict, I think as a child with the adults in the room, because I, they, you know, my family was strict and I, I asked a lot of why questions. So I used to be called like, you know, Mr. Why, and not like in Russian, that's not necessarily a compliment. So it was basically, I was being a pain, uh, but I was always very curious. And so as a result, I really thought about how come these conflicts that I get into with my parents and grandparents and, and I just uh, intuitively thought maybe there's a better way of doing it. I don't know if it was a conscious thought at the time, but I just, it just didn't sit well with me. I thought there would be, there, there was a better way. So then uh, when I was 10, we were, you know, we were brought to America and now I get into different conflicts with American kids who uh, refer to me as a uh, Russian, Soviet, et cetera, when I really wasn't that. I was kind of a refugee, you know, who, who came in. Again, a, a moment of confusion of how come these things are happening. And I started to rely, I think, on my personality to befriend people and to not be a threat to them as much as I, as much as I could, um, which led me to uh, my curiosity in negotiation. And so once I got older, I thought, how come some people get better prices on cars than other people? Because the car is a car, right? So how come some people uh, may have an easier time of it? And so then I studied negotiation in a very practical way of just these negotiation gambits and so on. And then when I went to college and eventually grad school, I studied negotiation theory. And this is why I actually went to grad school. Uh, but then um, while in grad school, I uh, had a chance to learn about mediation, which I didn't even know existed. And when I did it, when I, when I took the class, I really liked it. And I wanted to do it more. And eventually that uh, interest uh, became coaching because I wound, I started coaching my clients to reach a settlement. And then that sort of morphed into my desire to be a coach, which led me to coaching convention, which led me to, to meet the Dan Goldman uh, and the folks of the Institute, and then finally take it. Okay. I want to editorialize one second. Is sure. Imagine what a different world we'd live in if mediation and what you're describing was taught at the elementary school level. Oh, and, and through and, and just to teach kids around self-awareness and their feelings. And wow, it's one of my lifelong goals. I would love it. And and I'll tell you just a a little comment on that. Sometimes it frustrates me a little bit because adults who oversee kids, there's a great temptation. And I also sometimes feel it because I have a currently an 11 year old. And so there's a great temptation to just override their impulses with uh, parent power or, or teacher authority. And so a lot of programs um, that I find that sort of talk about this mediation, these mediation skills, what they really wind up being is kind of a process that a school puts together where the two people come and talk about, you know, whatever happened. And then they're both made to apologize to each other and then go back to the classroom, which is really not what the process is about. 
Uh, and so if I, and when I hear about these things, I really wish that I could help schools develop a more lengthy, more involved, but fun, but fundamentally more, I think, organic process of mediation, which is hearing each party, being able to tell the kids, Here, here's what I hear you doing. Here's what I hear you doing. Let them be acknowledged and then let them decide if they want to shake hands or whatever it is they want to do. Mm. Well, one, coaching fundamental is acknowledging and validating and right, and so that's missing from that conversation. Wow, I love that. What else would you add that's missing in the typical? Um, that sounds like like a two step mediation process. Yeah, currently. yeah. So in in lots of these things, what people I find are afraid of, which is why you mentioned on my website, how much time do you spend do you spend avoiding conflict? And we're getting to that in one second. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so people, people, and the reason I put that there is because really people really do avoid conflict. And so this is what the teachers try to do. They try to avoid it and, and sweep it under the rug as much as possible because they have their own agenda. They, they do want, they want to go on with the lesson and so on. And I totally understand it. And it is much better than not having a program at all. But the piece that's missing is to allow the kids to express frustration and to express anger and to hold the space for them to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say if, if, you know, if I had this magic wand in society, I would really create this safe space for people to be able to do that without consequence. And unfortunately in school, there's a lot of consequence for saying the wrong thing because if the person you're speaking to feels offended, it then becomes uh, you know, a problem for the speaker. And in some cases, of course there is. And if, so if, if a, a, a parent or an adult or a child, you, you know, lashes out and calls someone a name that's inappropriate and so on, of course that's a problem. But to be able to give that person a chance to vent and to be able to express themselves and then coach them to say something more productive, I think that's a fundamentally just better approach. And that's my step two. Mm-hmm. So let's get into this because... So for everyone who hasn't been on your uh, website, conflictyes.com, right there at the top, it says on your homepage, how much energy do you waste avoiding conflict? And I, when I saw that, I laughed out loud, not because it's inherently funny, but I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, clearly I'm not the only one. So this is an issue. Why are we so afraid of conflict? So I think it comes really from the parent-child dynamic. Parents aren't comfortable with it because they're taught conflict as violence. And and so they're very negative connotations. So they suppress conflict in their kids because of course, when kids um, do things that parents don't like and not necessarily bad things, but that, you know, just being kids or they're being annoying or they're asking difficult questions. It's very tempting for the parent to say, not now. Why? Because I'm your mother or your father, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so then kids don't learn and parents don't model how to deal with conflict and how to be able to sit with it, how to be able to process it, and how to make something positive of it. And, and I felt it in my own family system. And so this is back to the beginning of your question. When I was a, a child, there, there was no space for me to be able to express my anger. And, um, and so as a result, I felt uh, confined and stifled. I didn't know the words for that, but that's what I felt. And um, I bet other kids feel that too. Maybe they don't, they don't know enough to express it to themselves, or maybe that thread doesn't follow them into their career. But for you many know, people, it but does. For me, it really, for me, maybe it does. Yeah. And for me, it certainly did. And I really uh, worked to figure out what, what that piece was. And as a result, I, I you know, developed uh, 
a certain skill set and you know in that aspect well i want to go back because touching on what you said earlier too one is self-awareness and self-regulation does not say and you said it it's not about not having feelings of anger or frustration disappointment it's about acknowledging what you're feeling and so and through you know Mm -hmm. coaching and work coming to understand that's there are two components what am i feeling physically what are the sensations in my body and then what are the emotions that i'm feeling and then so i'm connected i'm checking in i'm like oh this is what i'm feeling now how i'm going to deal with it and not to make light but you know one of the best expressions ever you know raising kids and and being playing sports was the 24-hour rule which I apply to almost everything I do mm-hmm. now was it's like, if you're a parent, you're frustrated, you don't do or say anything to that coach on a team for 24 hours. And to your point, I found that it's really helpful too. There's so much information on com- incoming. So sometimes you hear something on the phone or you see an email or a text and you have a reaction to it. And then when you go back to it later, realizing, yep. wow, that's not what they wrote. Why did I even think that? Yep. I'm so glad I didn't react in the moment. So I want to acknowledge that because that's really, really clear and that's important. But the other thing that I thought was so important you said in your own experience is how as kids, we experience um, being shut down, not allowing to express. And now we can get into cultural issues or aspects of this gender issue. So as a girl growing up when I did, Mm -hmm. that was a zip. It was really loaded, but it's like, you know, uh, be quiet. I've written about this. It was just, you know, demure was highly prized and I wasn't it. I was um, an energetic, spirited child. Right. (laughs) With some impulse issues and a little disruptive at times. So there was that. And, um, but also the culturally just really, really wanting to be liked, which is a human need. And so um, it makes one very conflict averse. And and, and if you're good at reading signs, you realize, oh, I'm I'm not going to even bother to ask because asking is going to cause a problem. And that's it. And so this cause a problem, uh, very often the message people get is I better not do it. And I just had a conversation with my son just today. We had a a misunderstanding between myself and him and the school. And uh, his answer was, I asked him, how come you didn't follow up? And he said, because I didn't want to make trouble. Now, he makes plenty of trouble for me, but in school, he doesn't, he doesn't want to make trouble for his teachers because, you know, uh, they're adults. And, and so he wants to be a good, a good kid. And I, of course, I don't blame him. That's you know wonderful in, in many ways, but in some ways he then didn't follow up um, because I think that if he had followed up in this case, you know, with, with the teacher nicely, I don't think the teacher would have noticed uh, the pushback at all because he didn't have to say, it. you know, he could have said it in a nice way and he would have, but he didn't even want to try because he didn't want to take the chance of offending. Oh, I feel him completely. And then right? also in his own way, he was without realizing it, he had a cost benefit analysis going on. Right. Of course. And so, so today was one of those conversations when, you know, we talked and I, and I said, next time, try this. And it's okay to push a little bit and uh, you're not going to offend. As long as you say things politely and you state your need, that's the world. Tone energy, intent, all those things we can checklist as we go through. And now we're also intersecting into boundaries, which we did a whole episode with um, Terry Cole and her book, Boundary Boss, when that came out. And I've spoken a lot because again, Mm -hmm. in my media space and camera readiness, this comes up with people from pitching themselves to being in front or behind a camera, just in employment scenarios. How do we gingerly navigate the space. The other thing is when can too much intelligence be a bad thing? Meaning like if you're, if you're reading the room too much, too sensitive, 
So I think there are two pieces to this. I think that the time when someone is reading the room too much, they may just get overloaded with with data. I think that's a problem. So you know, I think of it as instrumentation. You're, the instruments have to be calibrated to the to the scenario, to the situation. That's that's the first piece. And the second piece is what meaning do you make of the data you get? And so sometimes we get the wrong meaning from the data. So uh, if we see someone with, uh, so for example, with their arms crossed. And so, yeah, yeah. So that could be because someone's cold. It could be because they're uh, defensive. It could be, you know, all all sorts of reasons. Maybe it's comfortable to sit that way. Uh, But let's even assume, right, that that you're looking at a room and you see that people are defensive and so on. So what what meaning does that have for you? Well, so one way to do that is to shut down and just, you know, stop talking and, and, and withdraw. But another way is to maybe ask the question of, I noticed this. How come that's so? Is there something I'm saying? And open up that conversation. And then you'll get data back. People will say, uh, no, I'm just sitting like this because I'm cold. Or somebody might say, now that you mention it, you know, when you said X, yeah, that didn't sit well mm-hmm. with me. And so then that's an exploration. And, and there's a piece of this that I, I, I want to just create a little distinction when we talk about the brain and we talk about how we respond to it. I think when we process all the stuff in our brain, there are two, two brains that we have to deal with. Uh, our... Uh, what we really think of our brain is the prefrontal cortex. It's the, the part of the brain that says, I'm now going to you know, speak with, with Barbara. I'm, I'm not going to say this or say that or speak to the camera. And then there is the more primal brain, the mammalian brain, which is where our amygdala sits, which is a little structure in our brain that's our emotional smoke detector. And so when conflict happens, our amygdala lights up because it is there evolutionarily to tell us to be safe. So this is the issue about being demure and, and so on. Why is that prized? Well, that's prized because probably at an evolutionary level, if you're demure, you might have a better chance of having a strong mate who's going to want to take care of you. And maybe 300,000 years, that was very valuable. But today, it's not so valuable, but that programming still exists. And when we don't realize it, we act on it, we make meaning from it, and we act on it as opposed to question it and say, is this appropriate for the situation? Okay. As you're saying this, so many things going around my head. And that was fantastic, by the way, Alex. So thank you. But also, so now there are people, we we see them in the public space. We probably work with some of them who actually love conflict, right? Run towards mm-hmm. conflict. So for the conflict averse, what are some strategies around the EQ of that? to navigate around the person who knows how to shut it down. Yeah. So I, I just want to ask for clarification. When you say people who love conflict, do you? how do you mean that? And the, the reason I'm asking is I am one of those people, and I wouldn't say that I love conflict, but I would say that that I'm certainly curious about it and I lean into it because it gives me energy, it gives me information, and it's my job. So it's I'm, I'm like a fireman. But there's a difference between a fireman and an arsonist. Yes, okay, so I'm talking fire. about the arsonist that you work with. Ooh, I okay. love that, Alex. <laughs> yeah. So, so how do you deal with an arsonist? To me, this is, and by the way, this is based now. My response is based uh, somewhat on uh, Marshall Rosenberg's uh, nonviolent communication, which is what is the need that's not being met? So, how come this person is doing what they're doing, and how come they're doing it in that specific way? And that's a question I ask my clients. And so a lot of it is because it's the only way they could get attention because they feel powerless otherwise. They're one trick. 
sometimes it's because they don't feel those boundaries we, we talked about. And so a lot of people who are perceived as bullies don't see themselves as bullies. Most people, in fact, don't. They What they're doing is from their perspective, they are blindly feeling for the boundary space because they don't have a good sense of it. They don't, their antennae just don't tune into that frequency for lots of reasons, many of them having to do probably with the way they were brought up. And so they're always pushing and pushing and pushing. They would probably interpret it as exploring, exploring, exploring. But when they're explored with force, as in when they have social status, when they have power in the workplace, then that exploration shows up as constantly pushing and pushing and pursuing and stalking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to other people. Wait, if I now can quote another book that I have on my bookshelf, because this whole episode is just like books that in my library. It's, <laughs> it's a little bit of the four agreements, because if we can teach ourselves not to take it personally, which is harder said than done for many of us when you're in that situation, but it, go, it circles right. back. If you can constantly remember it's not personal, so you can stop and observe as opposed to, and you can respond instead of react, which goes back into the self-awareness and self-regulation, then you're in a position to ask those questions, right? Instead of digging deeper. Yep. Ooh, I love this so much. And so this idea of taking it personally, this happens a lot. And so I would separate again into, into two pieces. The personal part is your own boundary being violated or the sense of that. But, and so what I would do is make some space between the person's actions, their intent, and then the impact it causes. And I think the impact is valid. So if the person who's receiving that exploration slash pushing is feeling put upon, that is a legitimate feeling. I think it, I, it needs to be explored and it needs to be, I, I think it's helpful for the person to actually create that language in their mind about what's happening. So I feel pushed, I feel intruded upon, et cetera, et cetera. And then the next piece is when did I start feeling that? And then how do I let that other person know that that's the impact they're having? And then let me ask about their intent. Because I bet, in my experience, most people do not say, yes, I meant to push and push and push because it's fun. They say, uh, I am frustrated. And this is my response when I'm frustrated. I wasn't pushing. I was offering or whatever, whatever it is they say. But that creates a dialogue. Oh, my gosh. That's fantastic. Okay. So many things. One, going back to what you're saying in the, in the reading of the room and with all this and not taking personally is also to remember, because I thought this was a great point, is also what you may be picking up has nothing to do with you. I meant like, right, it's uh, my babysitter called in sick today. And so now I'm frustrated because I don't have childcare. And you're picking up this energy and it really has nothing to do with you in that presentation or any, any number of things. I yep. uh, just broke up with my boyfriend last night, all that kind of energy. And two, the other thing going back when you, you learn this when you have kids, right, is that when they're down, you don't bring yourself down to their level, right? Because this is an important thing when you're going into a job interview or anything is you lift the energy in the room. So you decide how, you know, so just wanted to make that point out there. But the other thing that's way more important I want to bring up is like, how do we nominate you for mediator in chief? Because I think it must, like in any given day, we, you know, we're the world, we're so conflict cells and I do love, but you know what I'm, what I'm driving at is the fact that we're, yeah, you know, we're really, yeah. really divided. And that's another reason why this conversation is so important to me is how do we hear each other? How do we actually come back together and be focused on solving problems and moving forward as opposed to uh, kind of the thrill of the status quo, the energy, because some people feed off the energy of this constant, like, yeah. 
so again, our brain uh, plays tricks with us. And it's really important, I think, just as it's important to study mediation at an early age, I think that it's really great for kids to get a very simple age-appropriate instruction on the brain and how it works. It's the most important organ. And that their thoughts are not their brain. Mm-hmm. The, their thoughts and our thoughts are uh, some hypothetical meaning that our brain tries to make in order to help us survive, essentially. And we often, our brains often help us make quick meaning out of something because evolutionarily, it was really important to be quick. It was did not pay to be contemplative uh, in the savanna grasslands. That's not what you want to be doing, right? When that tiger comes, you want to be, you want to make a quick judgment. If you see something, whether you should run toward it and make it your dinner or run away from it so it doesn't make you its dinner. That's how you pass genes along to the next generation. And so we're a product of, of the marginally successful ancestors who figured out that better than maybe, you know, someone else did because here we are. And so we are pre-programmed by that to make these quick snap decisions that are survivalistic in nature and that are not reflective. And yeah, and so they're reflexive, not reflective. And so that sometimes it really doesn't serve us. So when we have the, the situation, as you're describing, you know, my babysitter canceled, uh, our brains have to then qu- make quick meaning of what does this mean? And, you know, one quick meaning uh, that a brain can make is it's your fault. It's because you didn't pay them, you overpaid them, you didn't call them, you should have called them, et cetera. Now, none of that has to be true, but that is our, that, that's of the brain's way of saying, here, now you have an answer, go act on it, onto the next problem. And that really doesn't serve us in, in the modern world. It really serves us to be self-aware, to say, oh yeah, I'm definitely feeling upset around this babysitter canceling on me. And let me not now start texting either you know my partner or my child or the babysitter with all kinds of firefighting approaches. And let me then move into sort of understanding what's happening with the babysitter. So maybe I should reach out and find out, ask more questions, and then decide if the babysitter says, yeah, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the prevailing wage is, is, has gone up and you haven't paid me in a few weeks. Well, maybe it's time to renegotiate, or maybe it was just something happened that had nothing to do with you, et cetera, et cetera. But it really takes uh, a little bit of, of time to, to calm oneself down and then ask questions rather than reflexively either lash out or apologize or do something else. The other big challenging thing it's helped me in reframing how I approached life years ago was to assume good intentions very hard when you're upset. When the amygdala is lit up, it is very difficult to assume good intentions because those good intentions don't live in the amygdala. They live in that prefrontal cortex. And how do they chat with each other? And actually, they don't chat with each other very well. There are very actually few pathways from one to the other. And I teach a college course called called Workplace Dispute Resolution. And what I have my students do for the entire semester to play the emotion game where we, we go around the room and every student has to name an emotion they're currently feeling and you cannot duplicate someone else's word. And at first the students can't imagine that there could be so many words in the room. But then as the semester goes on, we do it quickly, it's faster and faster and faster. And it turns out there are lots of emotional words. And the reason that we do the exercise is so that those words are accessible to the students. They enrich their vocabulary. Okay, for us who are not in your class, what do we do? 
Is there, do you have a lexicon I can go download somewhere? Can we go to live, live the year away? What, this is a great idea. So uh, I can recommend Paul Ekman's uh, Atlas of Emotion. That's one website I like. And if you remember the movie Inside Out, it was based on his model of basic emotions. You know, anger, sadness, happiness, I think, uh, disgust and uh, fear, I believe, something like that. And, and so... And so there are flavors of that, that that Paul Ekman has developed. So that's one one way to, to approach it. And there are lots of other, uh, there's a lot, a lot of research. Some, some scientists have 32 basic emotions. And from my perspective, it doesn't really matter. You don't need to be accurate, uh, academically accurate. Mm-hmm. You need to be accurate enough for yourself. And so if you're feeling out of sorts, something's not sitting with you. And this is what I do in mediation work. This is a lot of how I build trust with people is that I ask them, so are you upset about this in what way? And they don't know. Is it because you feel betrayed? Is it because you feel abandoned? Is it because you feel misunderstood? And then they say, yes, 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 misunderstood. Once they say it, so once it resonates with them, they feel better because now it's a way for the brain to file this emotion without creating meaning um, that that is other than just that, that label of, oh yeah, I felt misunderstood. Well, and a really important takeaway for me from this conversation, Alex, is also the power of asking questions, mm. mm-hmm. which is incredible. I mean, what an amazing tool because it also, on a practical level, gives you time to catch up, lowers your heart rate. You know, you can like, yep. breathe for a sec and step out while you're like, yeah, instead just be like, okay, I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to just ask some clarifying questions. Right. And those clarifying questions are typically the five questions that journalists ask when actually writing a newspaper column. Mm-hmm. What, when, where, who, and how. The one question that's actually missing from that, right? The one question that's missing from that that lots of people typically ask is a why question. So it's why is not a dirty word. And, and it could certainly, anyone can certainly ask themselves, why am I doing what I'm doing? You know? Um, so that's fine. But when I ask you, why are you doing what you're doing? It lands in two ways that's problematic. One is it could be interpreted as offensive. Like I'm actually asking yes. you why you're doing what you're doing as and you shouldn't be, which is which closes the conversation, makes the person defensive. And the other, if it doesn't do that, it's a very vague question. It takes the burden off of me, the, the asker of figuring out what am I trying to learn and puts it on you, the person being asked. So I just, I'm, what I'm really telling you is, hey, I'm curious about something, but now over to you, Barbara, you figure out what I'm curious about and answer the question in a way that will be helpful to me. And it's in no way fair. Wait, I'm loving this because from a media training level, I also advise often not to ask the why because it's not going to lead to a good story. Right. It's going to give a person's opinion as opposed to give you more information at best, right? And at worst, it'll make them defensive. Yeah, and it puts people on the defensive. Like, why did you choose to do that? Uh, right. Instead of like the walk us through. What were you thinking? Exactly. What's the how, benefit? Exactly. So I, the question I ask in coaching is, how did you come to do what you did? Mm, storytelling. And so storytelling, right? And when people go through their story, it gives me lots of information about the adjectives they use, about their pacing, about their cadence, et cetera. This is incredible. I could talk to you all day. I hope you'll come back. Anytime. Wait, so where do we find you? And and can we sign up for, you know, the Alex Yara way? Yes. So 
so you can. So I am in the process of uh, writing a book, which should be out next year. Congratulations. What's your book? Thank you. So it, it's actually about the tips I have uh, for people from my experience as a mediator and conflict coach about the kinds of things they should be doing and kinds of things they shouldn't be doing to promote understanding and reduce the chance of conflict. Oh, fantastic. You're coming back for that when you launch. Happy to. And and then uh, if uh, in the meantime, so the work I typically do is coach, uh, I, I coach leaders in how to be more effective, particularly around conflict resolution, feedback, either becoming more forthright with their conflict with other people who don't know that they're experiencing it, or often to dial back their conflict uh, in consideration of others and to repurpose it and to express their needs, but in a way that's that's more open-ended, that gives more space to more people. And a lot of people don't know that. So for example, if a, if a very left-brained uh, technologist is promoted from an individual contributor position into a leadership position, they just don't know how to behave. They don't know what leadership looks like. They imagine it looks like uh, it looked for them, which is leave me alone. Let me do my work. I'll get it to you. And for some people, that's great. But for many people, it's not great. And so then folks like that can get into trouble because they don't know how to read the room. Oh, Alex, I'm only laughing and smiling because to me, that is the media entertainment industrial complex in a nutshell is um, to make more money we and to reward creative people who've done a great job, we promote them up, but then we don't give them the resources to help them in that new management job. I've been witnessing that for years. It's one of the reasons why I do what I do, because yeah. I love to support people. It's like, you're amazing, but nobody told you how to do this. Absolutely. And it's not just in media. It happens in technology. It happens mm-hmm. in financial services. It happens in, in lots of places, right? You, because, because if you're good at your job, so now you get to tell other people how to do their jobs. And then those are very different skills. And then the other part is the part of your job you loved got taken away exactly. in exchange for a bigger paycheck. And that's tough too. Exactly. And so it's interesting because uh, Dan Pink wrote a book uh, some years ago called Drive, where he talked about right, the three motivators. And it turns out that above a certain threshold, money is not a motivator. It's your autonomy, right? So it's your idea, your ability to be creative and, and do something creative with your brain that's motivational. It's getting better at a craft, like mastery is motivational. And then a sense of contribution is motivational. But if you show up in, in a leadership role without knowing that and, and not uh, understanding how to now use your creativity to inspire, that all, and all you get is a paycheck, that is problematic. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so the other part of, um, of my work, in addition to coaching people, is sometimes mediating between uh, sometimes business partners who have different visions and don't have the communication skills and are acting on their impulses, everything we've talked about. And so I have a number of, of cases like that. And so the way to, to find me is to go on my website. And uh, there's a page there to schedule an appointment and to have a conversation about that. And that's through conflictyes.com? Conflictyes.com. And we can find you on LinkedIn? Oh, yeah. You can also find me on LinkedIn under my longer last name of Yaroslavsky. (laughs) This is awesome. You're fantastic. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to Camera Ready and Able. Please visit ableintermedia.com and download my free ebook, 12 Tips for Success on Camera and Off. And as always, please be sure to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already.